All right, let's jump in on tonight's topic, salvation in the patristic era, give or take 100 to 500 AD. We'll hit some stuff kind of mid to late in that time period. Um, So that's our topic for tonight. I want to do a little bit of a why to start off with. So uh, as a reminder for us, what is our purpose in or what do we gain from studying church history and or historical theology? Why don't we just study the Bible? Because don't we believe the Bible is sufficient? Don't we believe the Bible is valuable, authoritative? We believe those things here. So why would we devote our time to studying something other than the Bible? Okay. From where you've come. Okay. Appreciation from where you've come. So, and that uh, can be a valuable thing. Recognizing um, where things have been developed, the people that have been important, honoring, being able to honor those uh, to whom honor would be due. What else? I think there's that old saying, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay. So, just because we don't have a problem now, it doesn't mean it's not going to be something we're going to be faced with before. So, looking in the past to see how that was accounted for in previous generations of church elders and church, the church mm-hmm. can help us account for problems as they arise in the future. Okay. So... We can avoid errors that others have fallen prey to. I told my basketball team a couple weeks ago, like, hey, the, uh, the, the fool never learns from their mistakes. The normal person learns from their own mistakes, and the wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Um, so pay attention and learn from the mistakes of your teammates instead of making them yourself. Um, but in this case... Church history can help us see the the mistakes and the successes of others. I think there's some value there. What else? What else do we get? I mean, there's some cool, neat, interesting tidbits. Um, you can find some interest in it. Some of you are deeply interested in history. That's a good and a valuable thing. The uh, history of the church is directly aligned in some ways with the history of the Bible. And different versions of what different churches consider the Bible. Okay. Yeah. History on that. I'm changing stools because I like the other one better. Um, Yeah. History of the Bible helps us understand how we got our Bible. The discussion surrounding Scripture and authority um, is valuable. And how did we get the canon that we have? No. There's some homeschool curriculum. We're just talking homeschool, but there's uh, pegs. They like historical events mm-hmm. are like pegs that then you can apply knowledge from other things, like Copernicus. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, you know that whole period of time, and then understand how he conflicted with the church, the current church, his mm-hmm. his discoveries in science. Okay. It's just a peg. Yeah. Peg on a timeline. Mm-hmm. Peg on a timeline. Valuable. Anything else comes to mind? There's a lot of stuff that we've taken from the Bible. It's there, but it's not so clear in knowing how we came to this thinking commonly. Yep. Uh, And I think this is one of the key things that I'm thinking through, particularly on the doctrine of salvation. Most attempts... Of the th- most, most of the problems that we're going to encounter with people and that we're going to discuss about people and what has been called heresy is people that were using the Bible but ignoring other portions or taking one verse at the expense of others or ignoring other passages. So we can spare ourselves, one, heretical views. Two, we can spare ourselves a whole lot of work having to articulate and come up with definitions of the Trinity. Is Jesus of the same substance as the Father or similar substance of the Father? Most of the debates that were held and the discussions that were held in these councils are unreasonable to us if and only if you have studied church history and Christian theology before. If you've not studied the matter, At surface level, there is some attractiveness 
to the other position most of the time. So we can save ourselves, not that we don't need to learn and are on our own, but we can save ourselves a whole lot of problems by looking at it. Now, is the history of the church infallible? No. Okay. Fallible people make bad decisions today. Fallible people make bad decisions during church history. So we want to be a people of the book because God doesn't make mistakes, but it is helpful for us for the variety of reasons that we've talked about. So let's keep that in mind as we think through historical theology in the coming weeks and even tonight. As a reminder, difference in church history and historical theology, we're basically trying to look at different doctrines or different areas and their development over a time period rather than saying, hey, we're going to try to walk sequentially through time periods on its own, looking at everything there. So we're kind of grouping this grouped discussion tonight is on salvation and the understanding of salvation. But there's some stuff we've already discussed. Most of the people that we'll mention tonight, we've talked about previously. Right? Some of that is because the, the early Christian discussion really centered on the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, which is related to the way that they're going to articulate things about salvation. Okay, so on your own paper, on your own for a minute, I want you to circle the names of the good guys. Okay, we, we've done this. Maybe I'm not going to make you like admit all of them. All of you make admit all of them, but I'm going to ask you guys for some feedback in a minute. Okay, so circle the names of the good guys. Who are the good guys that we have found so far in church history? What are the names that you recognize as good guys? Because there's good guys, there's bad guys, right? Um, that's the way that I think of uh, things. Who are the guys that are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? If you haven't been here for all of them, you can take a pass. You can only circle the ones that you, that you think are good guys, and I won't assume that that means that the other ones are bad guys. You can cross through the bad guys because they're bad guys and they get crossed off the list. I don't know, okay? All right, so just brief review, and some of this will come in to play for tonight. Arius, good guy or bad guy? Help us out. Good guy or bad guy? 50-50 chance. Bad guy. Bad guy. Arius is a bad guy. So, Jacob, we're playing the game of good guy or bad guy with different names. Okay? So, Arius, good guy or bad guy? There we go. Thank you. All right. Bad guy. He said with pretty solid confidence on that one. Okay? Arius is a bad guy. All right? Arius is a bad guy. Um, Arius did not view Christ well. Um, and his opponent was Athanasius, okay? So Athanasius, good guy or bad guy? Good assumption. He's actually a bad guy too. These are all bad guys. All of them are bad guys. Some of them just had decent theology, okay? <laughs> so trick question, gotcha. All right, which actually is related to tonight, intentionally done for our discussion later. Every one of these is bad guys. None of them are good, but some did teach better doctrine than others, okay? So we would traditionally think of Athanasius as a good guy, okay? So the rest of the discussion on good guy, bad guy, we will go with guys that espoused what we would generally call orthodoxy versus heresy or heretical views. Athanasius is typically a good guy. Okay, I'm going to read you a longer quote I found from somewhere else on Athanasius. I thought this was interesting, just a tidbit of information of him. All right, so they had this council where Athanasius and Arian went at each other, okay? Like, I I intended to cue up on my phone some boxing enter the ring music because I feel like every time I think about a church council and two guys, that that's like the music that was playing as they entered into the grand church for them to have this massive debate. And it was the boxing. I mean, it feels like something from like one of the Rocky movies. Um, People are booing, cheering, you know, and it's like, hey, they're entering the ring to discuss all that's going on on the person of Christ. 
So Athanasius comes out in the first match a winner, but much like every Rocky movie, there is always a sequel. Okay? The influence of Arianism, despite being defeated, did not subside after the first council. Officially, the Nicene consensus of 325 remained unquestioned. Debates about Arianism, though, continued. A major challenge stemmed from the different language groups in the Roman Empire. The Latin-speaking West was often at odds with the Greek-speaking East. This is one reason councils took so long to form and deliberate. It took time to understand what was behind any one issue, and it took more time to have the nuanced discussions. All this was further complicated by Constantine in 332, who restored Arius as a bishop. Okay, remember, he's the guy that lost. He was the bad guy. He lost, but he's now restored by the emperor. Through the influence of Eusebius of Nicomedia and others in proximity to the court, Arius' teaching was viewed more favorably in parts of the empire. Arius even appealed successfully to Eusebius to help silence dissenters. Constantine died in 337. He planned for the empire to be ruled again as a tetrarchy, but the army refused to comply with his wishes, resulting in Constantine's three sons taking parts of the empire amid controversy. They struggled to relate one another, and the political turmoil resulted in ecclesiastical or church confusion. Constantine's son and successor in the East, Constantius, strongly advocated for the homoousios, the homoousios position, and this movement grew dramatically. Through his and Eusebius' influence, it's possible that most of the Roman Empire could have settled on this and not homoousios. Athanasius, an ardent defender of the 325 orthodoxy from Nicaea, was exiled five times for a total of 17 years after the Council of Nicaea due to his support of homoousios, or oh, no I in there. The swell of Arian theology after Nicaea grew so strong, some later coined the phrase Athanasius contra mundum, or Athanasius against the world. In his exile, Athanasius was able to cultivate support for the Nicene formula in the West. As his influence grew, things would change in the east with the death of Eusebius. Some bishops would take a more conciliatory view and work for an end to the conflict, but the empire was still divided. All right, theme music there. You need it. Enter it in your brain. Constantius ruling the east while his brother Constance gained sole authority of the western provinces and debate among the bishops would continue, but Athanasius' defense would steadily gain ground in the east. The emperor of the east that followed in Constantius in 361 sought to bring a pagan revival. But his reign was short and he died in 363. Two emperors later, the East was ruled by Valens, who showed favoritism to Arianism. So we're like 50 years later, and this thing's still being batted around. But by this time in the churches, the tide was running in the direction of the Nicene cause. Respect for Athanasius' view had grown, and it was time for him to pass the mantle to the Cappadocian fathers, who would further explicate Nicene orthodoxy, like Basil, Bishop of Caesarea, Gregory Nazian, and Gregory, Bishop of Nyssa. Okay, so moral of the story not only did they go at it once or a rematch or a rematch, but to some degree, like the councils weren't constantly going after it, but dude got booted five times. Um, that is a lot of ongoing debate about a particular issue. Okay? So that's Athanasius, that's Arius. We forgot to do the rest of the guys. All right, more guys, quickly. Augustine, good guy, bad guy? Good guy, correct. Cyril of Alexandria. We're going to talk more about Augustine tonight. Cyril of Alexandria. Nice. Irenaeus. Correct. Wrote the book against heresies. Marcion. Bad guy. <laughs> Hear your theme music, bad guy. Okay. Nestorius. What a cool name. Sounds like a bad guy. Bad guy. You guys are correct. Pelagius. I think a good guy. I don't remember exactly Sounds like Pelagius. Sounds like a good guy. Got a good name. We'll find out more about him later tonight, but I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up. Bad guy. Okay. So if you scored 100%, you're ready to take on Pastor Jacob in your game of church history trivia. If you missed a few, that's fine as well, okay? But as a reminder, you could have just gone with all of them are bad guys, and you could have gotten every one of them correct to start off with. Got you there, okay? For those of you that did not note that they were all bad guys, you may be guilty of Pelagianism, 
Okay, not be confused with plagiarism. You're you're laughing already on my great jokes. Okay, good, good. All right. Agree or disagree with the following quote. I'm going to let you read it to yourself. There's going to be parts that you may want to agree with, parts that you may want to disagree with. Would you be okay? Uh, Does this sound really good to you? Or you're like, man, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. Okay. Do not look ahead. Because we now play the game of good guy, bad guy. So if you look ahead at the footnote for where it comes from, you are definitely a bad guy because you have violated your pastoral instruction. And Hebrews 13, 17 says to obey your leaders. So, all right. Got two quotes there, but we'll, and really they go together. Um, So I'll let you, you can go ahead and read through both of them. You can read both of them. And the first quote, what he begins with is stating, hey, some people say these things, God forgive us for saying, others for saying those things. He's countering uh, some theological doctrinal statements and he's saying, no way. Um, All right, first quote, what do you like about it? Or what, what seems to be, yeah, well, I'll go with what do you like about it? God is thought of as seeking our punishment rather than our salvation. So, I mean, I, I think he's arguing saying that God, God is seeking our salvation. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. No one knows the extent of our strength rather than God who gave us the strength. Absolutely. Totally identify with that statement. Great statement. Key statement for this particular quote and this theologian is really kind of that last full sentence. God is not willed to command anything impossible for God is righteous and will not condemn anyone for what they could not help. That is the largest and probably most significant statement in that paragraph from this person. Okay. Are there parts that you disagree with there? Or would you say, hey, I'm largely on board with this guy. Don't know that I understand everything he's saying and everything that he's countering, but are you largely on board with the guy or there's an area you want to push on? The whole concept. I think that the, as overall, I disagree where it seems like it's leading. Okay. It goes to the concept that basically we don't have free will. We don't have a judge. Uh, we don't have any say in the matter. but And God's not going to hold us responsible for... Not uh, having a, a free will. Okay. That's what it sounds. It's it's taking something too far and showing unbiblical things where you can fit, probably think of a verse or two to, to go against that kind of overall okay. flow. Anybody else want to jump in on this first one? Yeah. Uh, 
God does not command the impossible. Everything is possible through him. Okay. Yeah, God, all things are possible. So, yeah, I like the way you're thinking scripturally in another phrase in scripture here. Part of the last sentence is, I think, the problem. Yeah. God will not condemn anyone for what they could not help. Yes. Not true. I mean, you, so you could say, it goes back to that conversation we had on, like, the first class. And so just because you didn't know about Jesus doesn't mean that and you're not, like, that is that argument, the discussion we had. So, doctrinally, that's a, not a true statement. You're struggling with that statement. All right. Well, but what if it's saying, like, what if it's kind of hard to tell? Yeah. Like, it is. This wasn't written in English. <laughs> but, like, you know, they talk about, like, what is it, original sin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you know, like, I come from a family. I'm not just saying this for me, but mm-hmm. just, like, my whole family is not Christian. Right. And all of that. So maybe with, maybe that's what he's talking about in certain circumstances where, you know, they didn't know or they yeah. didn't, you know. It's tied to the next paragraph, so let's go on into it. Same author. Didn't give you that, but same author. Probably guessed it, but right. What are you comfortable with and really like in this second paragraph? It's really let us off the hook in a lot of ways. Okay. Like we just, we come into the world a, a blank slate with the capacity for anything. Okay. And it would be nice if, if it was true, but I don't think it is. Okay. It's <laughs> also personal responsibility, right? Like, which, I mean, necessarily is a good thing for people to have. Mm-hmm. Right? So everything good and evil with respect to whether we're worthy for praise or blame is done by us, not born with us, mm-hmm. which is in broader societal context. Yeah. So he wants, at a positive level, he wants people to take personal responsibility for their actions rather than saying, some theological garbage, God made me do it, meaning sin, okay? Okay, Uh, personal responsibility, that's a positive. What are you concerned about in this second paragraph? Or do you not agree with? The thing of it is it it does not have our initial sin, you know, the original sin, Part that we are born and we're doomed, and and therefore need salvation. If we all have the capability to pick to be good and evil, we could then save ourselves. Correct. Yeah. I have four kids, and they were not born with the capacity for good. Right? Like, I was not born with the capacity for good. That comes through Christ alone. My kids have learned a lot of bad behavior from me, but not all their sinful behaviors come from me. Like. But the, is that people are generally good. It's kind of something you see in our society today. Yeah. That, that, that was a big split between our society. Are people generally born good or generally born evil and then need to be mm-hmm. saved through Christ? Okay. So, your author is Pelagius. Both quotes, Pelagius. We're going to come back to the discussion between Augustine and Pelagius in a few minutes. But I want you to notice, particularly from that first quote, there was a lot that you agreed with. Not wholesale, but a lot. (coughs) He's making some fairly reasonable sounding argumentation on a lot of it. Not all of it. And in the second one, you rightly picked up on his emphasis on personal responsibility for things. Good done all sorts of things, like, you know, Mormonism or something like that, or some other church's yeah. theology that sound good, but yeah. then when you start to look at it, you yeah. kind of see, you know, Church of Scientology yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Heresy that sounds bad doesn't really work. Like, false teaching that just sounds bad never goes anywhere. So you've got to make it sound good. You can kind of like... Yeah. It's got to sound attractive. Like prosperity gospel? Man, sign me up for the prosperity side of things. That's why it works. Like, hey, if you just follow Jesus and you give some money to some people, you'll get tenfold back and you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy. 
Man, sign, like, but the anti-prosperity, like, you know, hey, if you follow Jesus, you're going to be dirt poor. You give money to me, I'm going to put it into my brand new Ferrari, and you're going to be poor. And then you send me your prayer request, I'm going to throw it into the dumpster. And life is going to be miserable for you. Nobody signs up for that heresy. Okay, heresy has to sound attractive. Okay. All right. Take a step back, and then we're going to come back to Pelagius and Augustine in just a minute towards the end. I want to talk about salvation and the doctrine of salvation for a minute. Um, I think it's valuable for us to think about salvation as being in Christ. Um, And a lot of the discussion that they had in the early church is about what it means to be in Christ. I think I gave you this full quote. Union with Christ is not one phrase or an aspect of salvation. It is the whole of salvation in which all other aspects are subsets. John and Paul employed the terms or or variations of that term 216 times. Paul's repeated use of the term in Christ reveals that it is the central key to the apostles' doctrine of salvation, maybe even his whole theology. However, in him, in Christ, in the Lord, and so forth are so ubiquitous in his writings, we sometimes gloss over them and miss their importance, and the expressions seem abstract and difficult to understand. And that's what the early church in doctrine of salvation in many cases is wrestling with, is what does it mean to be in Christ? Who is Christ? We've spent a lot of time talking about Christology and the Trinity already. So I'm not going to spend as much time talking about that today as the work of Christ and the necessity of the work of Christ. And what does it mean to be saved and in Christ? What do you gain in that? Okay. So question for us, the, the classic theology texts talk about a difference in a positional union and an experiential union with Christ, or to be positionally in Christ and experientially in Christ. How do you think those two terms could be set against each other? How do those terms relate in that context? What does it mean to be positionally in Christ versus experientially in Christ? Positional, aren't you with him? But if you experience it, could be outside him. Positionally, it is not describing like me and you are in a position adjacent to each other. But your thinking and your attitude and everything that you do is with him. Okay. You're not looking at him, but you're with him. Yep. But experiential, experiencing some things, but I don't think that's all that covered everything. I may be wrong, Okay. Anybody else wrestling through what does it mean to be positionally in Christ and experientially in Christ? I kind of look at that like authenticity. Maybe. Okay. Like you have know, like a lot of people, you know, including myself sometimes, where you're like, yes, I am in Christ, or yes, we should all be in Christ. Mm-hmm. We are, we have been, we've done this, da, da, da. but like, are you? really experiencing that entire thing, you know. And and largely, this is used, we would use this most commonly today to say positionally at salvation, we are in Christ. We are united to Christ in salvation. When God looks at us, he regards us as in Christ, in the position of the Son, forgiven for our sins, It's a position in relationship to Christ and to God the Father. Experientially, we often don't act, I'm going to use your word, we often don't act authentically according to our position. We don't often, we're not always experiencing, and so in this case, experiencing could be used, would be used most of the time in a positive way, but not always, because some place a huge emphasis on experiential without the, uh, the positional, some only on the positional, and vi- different versions of the positional versus experiential weight. Um, sometimes in, in theology and in previous semesters, we may have talked about um, thinking about the fact that we have been saved and we are being saved, which is the term we would often use for sanctification. 
right? Um, and then the, the future aspect would be the glorification um, aspect. But we have been saved. We are being saved. Positionally, we are in Christ. Practically, we do not always function according to that position and act as we should according to the power of the Spirit at work in us. But placing, ignoring one or the other can have different problems. And one of the problems that came up in the view of union with Christ, a faulty view of union with Christ, is based out of the East. Okay, think Greece and East. Um, and it is the position of theosis in the Eastern Church. Okay. By the way, this was generated from Athanasius the good guy, who wasn't a good guy because he was a bad guy because we're all bad guys. Okay, but from Athanasius, his statement when he was trying to go against Arius and talk about Christ and really trying to emphasize Christ and the, the, the God-man that is Christ Jesus, Christ became like us so that we could become like him. The doctrine or the understanding of theosis emphasized by the early Greek church and still often emphasized today in many church traditions, teaches that we become divine in Christ. Building upon this concept, we would become like him. Hey, Athanasius, you won. You beat Arius. Oh, we're going to become like him. That's a good statement. Athanasius is the good guy. We must follow the good guy. We don't follow the bad guy. We follow the good guy. He beat the bad guy. He's the good guy. We follow the good guy. Your brain doesn't work this simple in church history. Like my brain, I just see everything in like a wrestling match and boxing match. Maybe it's just the way that my brain works. Is anybody else like processed through like church history in that way? The good guys, the bad guys? I don't know. This is, okay. That's because you're smarter and know more about it than I do. Okay. My simple brain is just good guy, bad guy. That they all had a lot of bad because that's and that's why I get a little defensive when we're quoting them like they're you know because it's not the yep. Bible yeah and in this case Athanasius would even have scripture on his side Second Peter one four I'll read verse three His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Okay, maybe not clear on that one so far. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, partakers, that you might become partakers of the divine nature. This statement, this concept of becoming like Christ is not without some biblical support. You got to understand ultimately as we're working through 2 Peter 1.4 that this is not saying that we're going to become exactly like him. But there are ways in which we are in Christ, ways in which Romans 8 talks about our glorification in Christ, Christ the first fruits of all who believe. But do we all become little gods? No, we would not say so. Yes. We experience eternal life alongside God in the future, perfect, around the throne of God. We are sinless. So there's some ways in which we experience in Christ his goodness and his nature. (laughs) But we do not become little gods. Theosis seemingly finds some support from 2 Peter 1.4. By the way, where do we find similarities with theosis today? Mormons. Mormonism. You become little gods. Anything that's like works-based. Okay. How so? I think I, think I see what... Because um, if our effort is involved, mm-hmm. then it's works-based. Okay. Maybe not based, but involved. So essentially, if it is works-based, we are proving our godlike nature by our goodness. To save ourselves. Okay. Yeah, our goodness. 
What'd you say? New age. Yep, absolutely. Explain how so. Losing yourself in oneness with God. Anybody else? So, why do we study church history? To help us in lots of ways. We see an error of the early Eastern church, ways in which it has some level of seeming support from the Bible that came out of a guy that seemed like a good guy. And when we make a good guy an infallible guy and read everything he said and make an emphasis that he may not even been making, we have a problem that is still rampant today. All right, other guys that were pretty good guys, but ways in which they were not great guys, um, but we would not agree with them. Origen and Gregory of Nyssa, generally regarded as good guys. Origen's Bible interpretation, I'm not a big fan of, but still largely, I put him in the good guy camp, but he's really close to the fence. Like, he's trying to stay neutral in my brain, but he's, he's not, okay? Origen, Gregory of Nyssa contributed positively on many other issues, but they were open to universalism, believing that everyone either could or would be saved at different levels of emphasis on that. So, they are not, we're not just looking back and they're like, hey, sign me up, man. I'm an originite, okay? Or I'm a Gregory of Nyssa guy. That's like me. That's my theologian. I agree with everything he says. Probably if you look through it, you're not going to um, find great scriptural support. Okay, union with Christ. Some emphasize the, the universalism and the aspect of theosis. And that side of becoming God's others would say, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it's what Christ has done for us. We would tend to agree a whole lot more here with the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. Um, That's something we would tend to emphasize a lot more um, than the experiential theosis element, um, even at a positive level. We're not where you're becoming God, but we tend to emphasize this one quite a bit. Tertullian emphasized the suffering of Christ for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says that very thing, that Christ died according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ is risen. I'm going to read it for us from 1 Corinthians 15, but emphasizing the for our sins aspect. Um, Christ died, verse 3, deliver to you of us first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and he appeared. So for our sins, Christ's suffering in our place. Augustine's a key figure. He says it's for our sakes that the Lord paid this one death, which he did not owe. Jesus did not die for his own sin. He died the death that we deserve, that we might gain what he deserved or what he owns, eternal life and right standing with God the Father. The Lord paid this one death which he did not owe in order that the death that we do owe might do us no harm. Christ is our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that through him we might become the righteousness of Christ. There is the substitutionary aspect of the sacrificial work of Christ that's emphasized by Tertullian and Augustine. Augustine begins winning the day. And then, as Romans 6 says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Winning the day theologically and the people of the day began in Rome running rampant in sin. A couple decades later, as he's been doing his thing, the people are sinful, there's moral laxity, they don't take Christ and his demands serious. You know, they're almost as messed up as we are. Like people, times as a pastor, like they say to me, man, I just wish that we could like return to the days of the New Testament church. I'm like, you mean when like people were having each other's wives and all the mess in Corinthians? Like which New Testament church do you want us to be like? Because I don't have one that I really want us to be like. Like they were messed up people. Um, and it was messed up people in Rome abusing the grace of God. Yeah. Yeah. There were a few good days, and then Ananias and Sapphira pop up, and you know, okay. And then they pop down. 
Yeah, or I guess pop over, okay? So, enter 380 Pelagius. A British guy shows up, observes the depravity, ongoing laxity of those Christians who know about God's grace and says, hmm, these people are doing some things they shouldn't be doing. They believe in God's grace, saving them. And in the background of that begins formulating a doctrine where we begin to earn our salvation by our works. And some are capable of pursuing God on their own terms. Others choose sin. He looks at him and says, hey, you're clearly not acting like you're in Christ. So maybe there's this free, big free will thing where you can do what you want to do. And he rightfully, some would say, reacts against some strong pushes of Augustine. But orthodox views would say he pushed way too hard in a lot of ways. And did he observe an accurate problem? Yes. Is that a problem that the church at Rome had in the 50s? Yes. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still remain and live in it? Paul encounters that argument 300 years before Pelagius shows up. And his rebuttal is not Pelagius's rebuttal. His rebuttal is you've got the Spirit, surrender to the Spirit's work in you. And he then goes on to give us the big case of Romans 6, 7, 8 on denying sin in light of God's grace, on God's sovereignty and work in salvation in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and then ways that we're to work out that salvation in Romans 12 through 16. So Pelagius didn't discover anything new, but he tried to come up with a new solution to it. He was concerned about the doctrines of grace and the moral laxity in Rome, which should be a reminder for us that good motives do not always make good decisions. That it is possible to have a really good motive observing a situation and not always get the decision right. Now, by God's spirit, we prayerfully get it right and having a bad motive is a bad way to go. You should not have a bad motive, okay? You should have a good motive. But a good motive alone does not always make a good decision. He had a good motive, but was not listening to the word very well with his good motive. Pelagius viewed grace as God granting the proper conditions for right action. In Pelagius' thought, God's grace means that he puts you in a position where you can make the right decision, where you can be brought along. God in his bigness puts you in a place where you can make the right decision. Okay? Pelagius viewed it as difficult, but still possible for people to be sinless. I'm guessing he was not a parent. Pelagius taught that Adam's sin impacts humanity, but primarily Adam is just a bad example. Like he's a bad example that we pattern ourselves often after. There wasn't something that was carried down as the impact other than just a bunch of bad examples. Augustine, all right, theme music, enter the ring, taught that all are born in sin because they are born according to Adam. That in Adam, there is something in his sin that breaks all of humanity after Adam. Okay, which chapter in Romans, by the way, do you think that he was using? Close. 12 is not close to 6. For all have sinned and fallen short. I failed. I have failed. 
moral laxity in our people. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, 5, 5, 5, <laughs> close to 6. <laughs> Not 7, the other way. 5, in Romans 5, verses 12 and following, we have this contrast, grand contrast between being in the first Adam and in the second Adam, Christ. What we are stuck in according to the flesh in Adam and what we are granted according to the spirit in the second Adam, Christ. Romans chapter five. And Augustine taught that we're all born in sin because of being born after the first Adam and culpable or blameworthy apart from our rebirth in Christ. That we in sin are sinners. We sin because we are sinners from birth. We do not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Okay. Augustine therefore viewed grace not as optional or selective or needed for special people, but he instead viewed grace as essential to be brought from death in sin, according to Ephesians 2, to life in Christ. It was just not, a, not just an aid to being able to choose what is good. Okay, so they're going at each other, back and forth, position papers, tweets, box and ring, whatever you need them to do. Okay, and he's saying, listen, grace is not just putting you in a right position to make a decision. Grace is, nece- is necessary for you to even be possible to make the right decision. It brings us to life. Augustine viewed all people as sinners. Psalm 143.2 being a text that he could have easily used as a reminder of the depravity, the brokenness of people in addition to a chapter in Romans that addresses that we've all sinned. Anybody want to go with a, an attempt at that one? It is not chapter 5. 3, Romans 3, good. All right. 143.2 of Psalms, enter not into judgment with your servant. No one living is righteous before you. That First John 1 passage talks about that we are all, if anyone says they are not, have no sin, they make God out to be a liar, all right? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So he looks and says, Pelagius, dude, you're not reading your Bible very well. Okay, there, there's a portion in the Old Testament, there's a portion in the New Testament, there's this whole like Romans chapter 3 part about there's none righteous, no, not one. Pelagius, you're not reading your Bible well. Okay? And salvation for sinners must be found in Christ. Augustine, though, good in so many ways, is reputed and noted to have also said that the primary requirement for receiving redemption is not just faith alone, it seems to be love for God as well, and he then holds on to a view that grace in many cases flows through or is dispensed by baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so there's some things that, though we look at him as a good guy, he does not get a 10 out of 10. He is not Jesus. Okay. So why does this relate back to the person of Christ? Well, if mankind can be, as Pelagius suggests, sinless, then Jesus' coming is an optional thing that could be beneficial but not a necessary thing. Christ, the God-man, becomes optional. And there's a means of self-salvation, and then there might be a means of Christ's salvation. So at the end of the day, a couple hundred years later, this thing gets wrestled out, not at the Council of Grape or the Council of Bananas, but at the Second Council of Oranges. The plural put on there just for your stick in your memory because it will work a whole lot better. You're going to remember this now because it is not the Council of Other Things or Green. It is the Council of Orange. Second one, if anyone asserts that Adam's sin affected him alone and not his descendants also, or at least if he declares that it is only the death of the body which is the punishment for sin. Not also that sin, which is the death of the soul, passed through one man to the whole human race. He does injustice to God and contradicts the apostle who says, therefore sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Romans 5, 12 quote. Proof that you did not look ahead. Good job. Canon three. If anyone says that the grace of God can be conferred as a result of human prayer, but it is not by grace itself which makes us pray to God. 
he contradicts the prophet Isaiah or the apostle who says the same thing. I've found, been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Okay? So that's the teaching that we would normally hold to, particularly on that issue on Pelagius and his view that sin is something that we choose and therefore are sinners. So where do we see his views today? One example that comes to mind for me, I read somebody else on this, I almost printed you the article, uh, in regard to a number of things, but particularly in regard to sexual desires. I have a desire, therefore it cannot be wrong. If we hold to not being born sinners, then it is possible to have desires that are, cannot be wrong. If, yeah, follow your heart. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay. It's prevalent throughout society because nobody wants to begin with the statement, I am broken. I am bad. I remember like a couple of years ago at the Easter egg hunt, I was presenting the gospel to boys and girls and I had somebody send me an email afterwards. I really liked the Easter egg hunt. My kid had a lot of fun. I just can't believe that you would tell kids they're bad. I'm like, you're a parent. How do you not know your kid's bad? Like, did you teach your kid to lie? Did you teach your, teach your kid to be selfish and steal Easter eggs from other kids? Do I need to blame you for that or do I need to blame your kid? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So often in our world today, we see the, the concept that we are not broken to the core. But depending upon how you word the question, you can get other views that are very in line with Pelagian thought where a large number of people in a recent survey agreed that people have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative and individuals must contribute to their own salvation. Those are a little deeper linked than whether or not I'm good or bad at the core. But if I'm bad at the core, dead in sin, then I can't turn to God on my own and I can't contribute to my own salvation. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. God, thank you that you have guided your people according to your word, that they've wrestled with it, studied it diligently. And God... As we look at the historical errors of others, would you spare us errors and grant us humility today? Uh, God, thank you that you guide us. Uh, Would you continue to do so? Would we walk in humble boldness according to your word, uh, knowing what we believe and why we believe? And God, help us to be in you, not only positionally, but walking according to the Spirit's power in us. God, that we might not uh, give reason to doubt your work in us, but that we might have others seeing our good deeds and glorifying our Father in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.